Hey everyone, this is Kike Autry and welcome to the Psyche Podcast. Hope you've had a great week and that you're looking forward to a nice weekend connecting with friends and family. I have a special episode for you today. Uh, we're going to have an interview with Dr. Edward S. Casey. Uh, this is an interview that I've wanted to have for some time now. The reason being that one of Edward's good friends and intellectual mentors was Dr. James Hillman, who's one of my heroes, uh, one of the figures out there who's most impacted my psychoanalytic thinking. And so to finally sit down with someone who knew James Hillman and really connected with him and his ideas was really exciting. So to start things off, I want to go ahead and read uh, Dr. Ed Casey's biography from his website. Dr. Edward S. Casey is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Stony Brook University. He was the president of the American Philosophical Association Eastern Division from 2009 to 2010, and he was chairman of the philosophy department at Stony Brook University for a decade. He works in aesthetics, philosophy of space and time, ethics, perception, and psychoanalytic theory. He obtained his doctorate at Northwestern University in 1967, and he's taught at Yale University, the University of California at Santa Barbara, the New School for Social Research, Emory University, and several other institutions. He is currently Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Stony Brook University. His recent research includes investigations into place and space, landscape painting, and maps as modes of representation, ethics and the other, feeling and emotion, philosophy of perception with special attention to the role of the glance and the nature of edges. He is the author of over 10 books, including his most recent, the book that we dive into in this episode, Turning Emotion Inside Out, Affective Life Beyond the Subject. Here are just a few of the episode highlights we explore a philosophical and psychological reflection on the migration crisis in the United States today. I thought Dr. Casey had some really insightful and helpful insights into what's going on. Uh, we look at Ed's philosophical and psychological journey, um, his early experience with the Menninger Clinic and into his relationship with Hillman and Derrida and so many others. Uh, we specifically dive into Jacques Derrida's understanding of hospitality and how that might help us think about our current American social xenophobia, which which we explore. Uh, obviously, we get into the wonderful James Hellman, and we talk about Dr. Casey's relationship with Hellman and some of his ideas and how it has impacted his own philosophical trajectory. Uh, then we get into his book, Turning Emotion Inside Out, which I highly recommend that you check out. E even if you're like me, you're just sort of interested in philosophy, kind of an armchair approach to things. It's very readable. Um, th there, there are some difficult concepts, but Dr. Casey is a very clear author and his understanding of emotion, uh, which I won't 
get into too much in this preview, I want you to listen to the episode, is revolutionary and super insightful. I, I think you'll really connect with it if you're interested in psychology and the social and public life. Yeah, we, we just have a wonderful conversation. I really connected with Dr. Casey's spirit and his ideas. I'm really hoping that we can form some type of online friendship and continue to have conversations. Uh, there's many books that I'd like to get into that he's written alongside his uh, partner, Mary Watkins. Uh, there's a book on uh, the Texas border wall, uh, looking at it from kind of a philosophical and depth psychological approach. I think that's the book I want to read next, since that's an issue that's so close to my own heart and to you know the state that I live in. Anyways, I hope that you enjoy this episode. As always, please share it with people that might benefit from listening to it. If you can, if you have the time, if you're willing, leave me a positive rating and review. And as always, continue the conversation. So Ed, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast, Psyche. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. I know that we shared we share a, a mutual interest in James Hillman, and I can't wait to get into that. But before we do that, would you mind just saying a little bit about yourself in terms of just a brief introduction for the guest, and then we can launch into our conversation? Yes. So um, I've had a double and probably a triple career um, in many respects. The doubleness is really philosophy and psychology. Um, I was trained as a philosopher but was drawn into psychology, particularly into psychoanalysis, uh, first of a Freudian persuasion. Um, I wrote some articles on Freud um, and the unconscious hmm. uh, and even went through psychoanalytic training in New Haven, Connecticut at an institute for Freudians. But soon after, um, I met Hillman and heard his uh, incredible lectures that he gave at Yale University in 1976, I think it was. Uh, and that actually opened my mind to a much broader and deeper sense of where psychoanalysis uh, can go um, and did go in his hands. And we became close friends um, and collaborated. He helped me publish a book called Spirit and Soul, which these are reflections on archetypal psychology um, with special emphasis upon the difference between the two um, processes, spirit, which means really um, ideation, uh, thinking, uh, includes remembering, and soul, which is really a matter of emotion, connection, uh, links to others, and indeed to the natural world as well. So those, and that continued all the way through Hillman's long life. Um, uh, I was active in the archetypal psychology movement that he uh, led here in America and also in Europe. Um, and and that, that remains a very strong interest of mine. But a third direction of my Sure. Life life work has been painting. Oh wow. Okay. And so I've I've had originally hoped to be a painter when I was very young. 
This is brutally eliminated by my parents sending me to a boarding school that had no art. Oh, man. Because uh, they really felt that this was a dangerous <laughs> vocation. Were they worried that you wouldn't make enough money? Yes, and even more worried that I would become what they called a bohemian. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, I was an obedient young boy, and so, you know, I went to this boarding school, which was in North Carolina, although I was from Kansas. Okay. Uh, so this has been going a long way from home. But it did send me to philosophy because of the long, lonely weekends at the school. Mm. Uh, I began to read much more broadly than the classes were allowing and and got into Satyana, even Aristotle, um, without really understanding what was going on. Sure. <laughs> I was over my head, but I did sense there was something extraordinary going on, which I needed to know more about. Yeah, and, and so in college, I, I concentrated on philosophy, and and then I found one particular form of contemporary philosophy that really worked for me, and that's phenomenology. Mm. Uh, phenomenology is really the effort to look at things very closely, descriptively, uh, suspending uh, prejudgments due to natural or social science. But, but trying to be very closely descriptive of exactly uh, what is happening to one, with one, for one, uh, in one. Um, and so it's a whole movement that's become very widely pursued in America now, as well as in Europe, and indeed in South America as well. Okay. Uh, Phenomenology, and it's it's congenial with archetypal psychology, uh, although the two were historically not connected. But they, I found them to have a lot in common, and so a lot of my work was kind of uh, bridge uh, work that I did between depth psychology, archetypal psychology. It's it's all the same, and phenomenology. Got you. So yeah, there's that's a great. Sense, that's a sense sense of where I've been professionally, and this last book, um, emotions, uh, was a long time in coming, uh, and it was um, I had taught emotion and affect, both undergraduate and graduate at SUNY Stony Brook for many years, but never quite could seem to get together a, a coherent <laughs> narrative <laughs> about it. Uh, until about two years ago. Mm. And then I thought, okay, I need to get my thought together on this, you know, and I'm going to say something different and new um, than what is usually considered to be um, the nature of emotion. So I came out with this book um, that's called um, Turning Emotion Inside Out. Yes. Uh, that's the title. Uh, and it is was an effort to de-subjectify um, the emotional life. Uh, I, I do not deny that there is the human subject, of course, is always at stake sure. in emotion. I grant that. But I'm much more interested in situations where, as the book tries to develop in detail, 
we uh, absorb emotion. We encounter it. We take it in from around us, before mm. us, outside us even. Uh, and th- this is sometimes called emotional atmosphere. Yes. And so I attempt to do much more justice to this pervasive, invasive sense of emotionality um, than I think has been done before this. Uh, Ironically, James Hillman's first book was on emotion. It was his his dissertation (laughs) at the University of Zurich. Or maybe it was University of Dublin. In any case, it was over there somewhere. <laughs> and um, I, uh, I I consider the book on emotion my last single-authored book. It's my 10th book, mm. single-authored. Uh, and from here on, I'm I'm working with co-authored books. Okay. Um, several of which are in the making as we speak. Wow. Uh, I'm just I'm just retiring from SUNY Stony Book. Uh, and will uh, still live in New York uh, for part of the year, and the other part of the year is in Santa Barbara, California, which is where I'm at. Oh, at nice. This mo- at this moment, I'm on the West Coast um, speaking to you from my home there. Okay, great. So, yeah, you're on both sides. <laughs> yes, I try to move back and forth, actually, uh, both for family reasons and because, you know, the different cultures and Climates are oh, sure. complementary to each other in many ways, and and so I, I, I'm kind of into this with them, which I've been maintaining now for more than twenty years. Okay, uh, of East and West Coast uh, alternating uh, with each other. So um, that rhythm will continue even uh, in my later years as I have uh, gone into re- retirement. But I'll do more painting and I'll do more writing with other people. Okay. Uh, you know, that'll be my my plan. And then thirdly, I'm, I'm hoping to do a lot more socially significant work uh, with um, the incarcerated um, and also with migrants. Oh, wonderful. Uh, and being very concerned about the fate of both uh, in American society where I consider them woefully and shamefully mistreated and neglected. Yes. Neglected and migrants alike. Mm. Um, I founded a group on the East Coast called Asylee Advocates. These are largely composed of volunteers, graduate students, undergrads. Um, And we try to help people who've been granted asylum, who've been released from detention by ICE, but who uh, are lost in the world because they have no income, they have no shelter, they're simply, literally turned out onto the street right. from, from detention centers. And our little group, and many others like it, attempt to uh, orient these folks and help them find work and lodging and a new life in America. Mm. Uh, it's a struggle because it, it's not easily obtained, I assure you. <laughs> but right. But it's desperately needed because this is one of the great areas of neglect in U.S. society yes. at this time. Well, uh, and and I know I, I didn't even imagine us getting into this, but I'd be curious to hear your kind of philosophical thoughts on this. I was just talking to a client today 
who's a part of a few kind of leftist political groups. And we were just kind of trying to understand why the whole immigration issue has become such a politicized reality on the right that, that just gets smeared and, and, you know, just torn to pieces. I'm, you know, I, I, I have some thoughts on that, but, but I'm curious what you would say since you are so deeply embedded in all that. I think it's, you know, um, taking the natural uneasiness with foreignness of Mm. any kind and then focusing it, over-focusing it on migrants and then intensifying the opposition and the suspicion because of what I consider a fabricated fear of loss of jobs for Americans, it just doesn't work that way. Right. It, it's it's plain wrong. And I know from my own home state of Kansas mm. that, in fact, many migrants have not only found work in small towns, they've actually led to the revival of the local culture of those towns. Yes. And so, in fact, the natives there um, welcome new migrants because they actually have injected new life into uh, a stagnant culture of the Midwest. So it's um, it's completely phony, the, the notion that somehow immigrants are taking the jobs of um, of ordinary, hardworking Americans. Right. It, it doesn't work that way. There, yeah. are, there are lots of jobs out there. <laughs> yes, amen and, to that. <laughs> right. And I, th- I think, yeah, I think a psychological approach to it is helpful because... Um, one really has to ask oneself, if opposed to immigration in these irrational ways, you know, where's that coming from? Uh, And I think it has a lot to do with the fear of the alien, Mm. those who speak different languages and have different cultures, um, who look different. Um, All of this being under the heading of phobic uh, and superphobic responses to people who are perfectly human and perfectly assiduous, hardworking, um, and and good people, by and large, certainly as good as the rest of us are. Right. And, it's a type um, of xenophobia. Yes. Yes, exactly. And xenos means the foreign, the foreigner. You see, anything that's foreign is suspicious, an object of suspicion. This is most most tragically un, un, unfair and unfortunate mm. at this historical moment. Mm. And I think those of us who are not only politically, but culturally and psychologically minded can, you know, see that there is a better way to do all this yes. and talk it up and, 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 and really act on it in our own personal lives. Um, you know, th- this is something it doesn't have to be a, a major commitment. A Nigerian family that I'm supporting in Vermont since they first uh, came over here has found spontaneously a whole group of uh, local supportive uh, folks who are helping them get started in a new life up up in Vermont. You know, I mean, this is extraordinary. And that th- these are ordinary Americans who just realize that Nigerian culture 
is so very different that the family, a father, three children, and and a wife who is finally coming over, having been held in Nigeria for years, coming over next week, as a matter of fact, Mm. um, uh, deserves a break. And so they're being helped spontaneously by folks from the local community. Many of them are actually um, from a Catholic church. Okay. You you think that might make them suspicious and even opposed on on the right side of things, but no, actually, it's not working that way. Uh, There's a lot of empathy, uh, a lot of outreach, a lot of volunteer work going on here, and this isn't controlled or organized from above or beyond. These are people really who are drawing upon their good-hearted outreach to this Nigerian family. Wow. Uh, So this is the kind of spontaneous support that I hope more Americans can engage in in years ahead because we do desperately need it for the very reason that you mentioned, um, namely the, the, the deep, rejection and suspicion on the part of those largely politically on the right. Yes. Uh, I'm so, afraid to say. So, yeah. so Ed, oh, this is amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad it's actually going in this direction. If if what we see is a type of xenophobia, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back. One of my degrees is in theology, actually. And, you mm-hmm. know, one of the, and I, I no longer identify as a Christian or, or am that interested in organized religion, but but it's a part of my past at some level. I remember, you know, what we would translate as hospitality now is actually xenophilia, which is a type of love of the stranger or the other. I, I don't know what I think about that anymore, but I'm, I'm, I'm just curious from your psychological and philosophical perspective, even drawing from someone like Hillman, if what we see is a type of xenophobia, is hospitality or xenophilia the alternative or is it something else? Yeah, well, hospitality is a key notion here, uh, and I'm really glad you bring it up. Uh, here, I follow the extraordinary work of Jacques Derrida, sure. the French philosopher, um, and one late text of his, uh, which, in fact, is called On Hospitality. So I very much recommend to listeners okay. to this podcast. Um So Derrida develops there the notion of what he calls absolute hospitality, which is to be contrasted with limited, uh, socially modalized hospitality. That's manners and, you know, good good form and all those things too easy to to enact and not really deeply significant uh, at all. And absolute hospitality on Derrida's view means Uh, And he extends this very broadly, not only of another race, not only of another gender preference, not only uh, human even. It could be an animal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It could be any living being. Sure. Uh, We must be open to that person seeking uh, our assistance, uh, even if we don't know that person at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he develops this notion that hospitality is doesn't really live unless it's absolute and unconditional. We don't ask questions. We say, fine, okay, you need some food? Here it is. You need some clothing? I'll get it for you. Um, 
And so it may sound naive, but the whole point is we 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 need to be radically open mm. and, and, and radically um, porous when it comes to the xenos, the stranger, the foreigner at the door. Uh, this you know at the door, both literally and and in in various symbolic ways. Um, all of it counts uh, in this notion of Derrida's uh, of absolute hospitality. I think that is uh, an attitude that's particularly pertinent to what we were discussing earlier. That is the role of migrants um, mm. and indeed the incarcerated, the recently released incarcerated in particular uh, in American life, um, where the uh, an attitude of openness um, and genuine welcome. Uh, needs to be needs to be pursued, uh, and sure, there's some risk. Of course, there is. Sure, but look, if there's no risk, there's no gain. Yeah, and no, that's so, right. So I'm I'm really uh, excited about this last notion, and I think it 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 can really affect our ordinary lives as American citizens uh, who are dealing uh, with. With immigrants, I mean, you in Texas must be confronting yes this situation, particularly recently. I don't know if your own town is near the border. I don't know exactly where you're located. I'm I'm, I'm in Houston or a kind of a suburb of Houston, so we're not directly by the border. But but uh, yeah, yeah, my my younger sister is an immigration lawyer, so I'm I'm yeah. pretty involved in in some of that. So yeah, but but Texas. And and you know I love Texas. I always say this, but but our politics suck, and and you know there, there's some really problematic issues. But but it is a great state, and and I'm I'm hoping that we kind of turn the tide on some of that. But it, but it's kind of it's kind of a sad thing right now. Yes, no, it really is. I mean, we see that, of course, in the shooting at Uvalde, yes. uh, and and the governor's non-response to this Correct. really ex- extraordinarily talk about inhospitality, you know, and, right. and unbelievable. The governor Abbott, you know, turns a deaf ear well, at the very moment yeah, when he could make a difference. Absolutely. And and the thing that's really frustrating, again, if, if I can bring Christianity into it just for a moment, you know, one of the central ideas in the kind of Jesus movement was if, if, if there's a prisoner or a foreigner or, or someone in need, you know, that person at some level is almost the embodiment of this Jesus figure. And it seems like the types of Christianity we're seeing now are so opposed to that. They're, they're all right. about the xenophobia instead of that xenophilia. And so it's really confusing to understand how all that's happening. Yes, I agree. No, you're, you're right. No, no, Christianity is really part of this. And you'll see Derrida, who's uh, actually a Jewish right. by origin, nevertheless invoking Jesus um, in that very essay, Okay, which I really hope you can read. Uh, yeah, I'm going to check that you'll, out. You'll be amazed. It's a very short book, okay. well translated, um, and it's, it, it's really a powerful message to Americans today. And indeed, to the French, of course, because <laughs> sure. they they have their own problems with migration. That's for sure. Right, um, coming from across the water from the Mediterranean, yes, uh, northward. Uh, yeah, no this this is this is really becoming a you know a key issue of our time, and I think that phenomenology and, and Christianity alike, along with depth psychology, 
can offer um, inroads into a much more sensitive, um, a much more thoughtful, a much more well-hearted, um, deeply hearted way of understanding these issues. I don't even want to call them problems because it's right. we who make them problems out of our own uh, misunderstanding and impatience. Yes. These are ordinary human beings who just want to live a, a life that's viable and mm. that's supportive of their families, um, uh, even in some minimal way. And, and Americans have turned a deaf ear to that right. uh, increasingly and, 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 and very much at both state and national levels, thanks to a certain um, segment of the Republican Party, I'm afraid to say. And yeah. Uh, it, it's it's um, sad to see that. Yes, it is. Uh, and there there are there are indeed decent Republicans. I, I understand that oh, um, for sure. And in fact, they're right in Texas. <laughs> Some of them <laughs> yeah. were interviewed in this last budget crisis um, situation in Washington. So you know you can't just generalize all over the right, place. Right, right, absolutely. So that's really not right. Yeah, yeah no, I agree. So. And, uh, we we can talk about this the whole time if you want to, but yeah. but I'm I'm just curious, you know, just thinking a little bit about James Hillman, and then obviously thinking about you. One one of the things I like to do in the episodes is to kind of go back to childhood a little bit, and I, and I usually ask a certain question, but I'm gonna try to channel Hillman for a second. I think he might appreciate this question for you. Is I'm I'm curious, what were the fantasies in your childhood that kind of permeated that time that might have led to you eventually getting into philosophy and depth psychology, or, or was it a complete break from kind of what you grew up with? No, it wasn't a complete break. Okay. Um, curiously enough, uh, in Topeka, Kansas, of all remote places, there was a very, um, a, a very interesting psychiatric mm. hospital and center called the Menninger Clinic. Oh yeah. There's a branch have, of that in Houston now. Exactly. Sure. They, in fact, they they moved to Houston uh, altogether from Topeka. As a matter oh, okay. of fact, it's based in Houston. And it turned out, by pure serendipity, my father was the attorney, the lawyer for the oh. Medicare Foundation. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so I met a lot of psychiatrists um, and other people associated with um, psychological uh, help counsel. Um, and I even worked as an art therapist at the Institute, um, and summers. Okay. Putting together those interests, even when I was only uh, in middle school, uh, in Topeka. Oh, wow. So I, I, I was taking, this is depth psychology. It was a Freudian, uh, depth psychology, but you know, Hey, uh, it's, it's all valuable if we Absolutely. can only follow it fully to, you know, what it's trying to say. And so I I kind of grew up in that ambiance um, and, and thinking that somewhere in my life, uh, psychology has to figure. Well, turns out, in terms of my intellectual interest, philosophy, <laughs> philosophy had more of an appeal. I'm not sure just why. I think I like the idea that, that you could actually write mm. a, a treatise, a paper, a book, and say something that at least you claim to be interesting or definitive. Um, uh, so I just like to write, period. 
so we put all those things together and philosophy was was something that I was deeply drawn to, as was James Hillman himself. He he started as a philosopher. Okay. That was his original area of study. And he, and he moved over to psychology um, thanks to his experience at the Jung Institute in Zurich. Yes. And his actual acquaintance with Carl Gustav Jung. I mean, he, he, he actually knew the founder uh, and was part of the early... Um, Period. He was a young man uh, in, a, in a, an array of, of ex- extraordinary Jungian thinkers mm. uh, uh, who were circulating around Jung. And so, but Hillman was a renegade, yes. and he <laughs> he he was um, very unhappy with Jung's politics. Uh, mm. He was he he, he was. Um, trying because Jung was like a. I know there's a book that I've read. He was like an avant-garde conservative. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, 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 he was. Um, he was not um, constructively critical of Hitler at a time when his voice could have made a difference right. in World War II, and and Hillman never forgave him for that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was really a form of uh, benightedness. Okay. That he figured that, that Jung's, well, I don't know. Jung's always trying to put a kind of, you know, positive uh, gloss on things. And some things you just can't do that to. <laughs> it's never going to come out right. Right. And Nazism is one of those things. And so still, nevertheless, nevertheless, Hillman thought that the move to suke or soul um, on Jung's part was something that the broader world needed and and needed Mm. to be articulated in highly literate ways. Jung Jung himself was a bit um, uh, verbose, you might say. He he overwrote in many respects. Hillman was a very talented uh, guy with a literary flair. Yes, very much so. So, yeah, you 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 must have sensed that. I'm sure yourself. Yes, that's one of the things that drew me to him was was his writing style. Yeah. Yes. No, it's really extraordinary. Mm. And so I think you know he he felt that the aesthetic element, the artistic element, was not merely secondary, but was really important in getting a message across to people. Um, not not just for the you know the frill of it, but rather right. it it's um, it, it goes straight down to the heart um, more more fully than a more cerebral, distance type of writing, sure. um, as Jung could unfortunately sometimes engage in. So so Hillman really really tried to to say it loud and clear, and I'm sure you know yourself. Um, some of the extraordinary essays that he wrote, including one called Thought of the Heart, which is an amazing piece. Oh, yes. Very much recommend to all listeners. Yes, um, same here. That was a, that's a great one. It, it really is. I actually heard him deliver that in New York. I happened to oh, be wow. <laughs> in, in town. It's really something. It was really it was a, an epiphany. You know, I thought, wow, okay, this guy, he, he's he's going somewhere. Wow. Right. Well, um, it, it, you know, as a quick aside, too, I just wanted to check in. I, I recently downloaded his uh, Senex and Puer lectures that he gave near the end of his mm-hmm. life. 
And mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but because he says Ed at one point, and it, now that I hear your voice, I'm realizing mm-hmm. I think you were in the audience <laughs> engaging yes. with him, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yes, very likely. We we did collaborate a lot. He seemed and, to have a um, tremendous respect for your intellectual prowess. That that was cool to, to see and to hear. I think he liked the fact that I stayed largely in philosophy, okay, uh, unlike himself. And I edited, by the way, toward um, after he died, I edited all of his philosophically relevant papers in a book uh, that's published called Philosophical Intimations. I saw that. Um, I'm, I, I want to buy that because I saw that you kind of wrote maybe the introduction yeah. for that. Okay. Yes, and and there's even a dialogue between himself and myself that we oh, had wow. at the very very end of his life. Okay. Um, on on ethical metaphysical issues, um, showing he was a philosopher to the end. Mm. It's just that he he became all too famous okay. as a psychologist. Got you. And so he had to keep up with that reputation, so to speak. But sure. But he was a philosopher at heart, I believe. Okay. And so this this volume, um, which is published, in uh, matter of fact, it's published in Dallas by the Dallas Institute of Humanities, uh, is worth looking at because you'll see another side of Hillman. Okay. There than his more famous psychologically uh, oriented writings. Got you. Um, so so do have a look at that, and I I, I, hope I will. Your, your listeners will realize that Hillman was. A kind of double genius, mm. philosophical and psychological, um, really unique voice in the last century, still speaks to this century, um, was very concerned about social issues, um, which we discussed frequently with with my partner, Mary Watkins, who was also a close associate of Hillman's. Oh, Okay. And they collaborated on a lot of a lot of projects. Um, Mary actually studied with Hillman in Zurich as a very young woman. Um, I feel so like I've read some of her writings, but I can't I can't remember. I, I know that name sounds so familiar. Wow. Yeah. Well, she's she's written some wonderful things. Waking Dreams is one of her books. Maybe, uh, maybe that's the one that I've read. Yeah. That was very influenced by James Hillman, actually. Okay. And so the two of us, um, matter of fact, we met. We, oh, okay. we got together in the in the, ambi- the ambiance of, of Jim Hillman. Um, that that that's how we got together many years ago. Gotcha. And, um, uh, we're we're still uh, allied closely. We wrote a book together that would interest you as a Texan. Okay. Called "Up Against the Wall." Mm. So it's an analysis and critique of the border wall. Oh wow! In Tex- okay, in Texas, especially in Texas, elsewhere too, but but especially in Texas, it's published by University of Texas Press. Oh, okay, I'll against, have to check that out. Against, yeah, up against the wall is the title. Uh, Casey and Watkins. Okay, um, thank you. Uh, yeah, we we really <laughs> we we wish Donald Trump <laughs> taking a look at our book. But yeah, me too. <laughs> So can can I ask you a quick question? This is a little bit of an aside, but I have some some online kind of acquaintances, friends that are kind of philosophers who are very into Hillman. They're also into uh, Deleuze and Guattari, and they're always wondering if Hillman read those guys, if he appreciated Mm -hmm. them at all. Do you you know at all if, if he was reading some of that stuff? 
Well, I do know something about this because okay. <laughs> at first he was not reading them. Okay. And frankly, it was my urging ah. that he started reading them. Okay. Uh, Foucault was um, someone he was really struck by. Okay. Um, and then Deleuze and Guattari, toward the end of his life, I tried to convince him that they were really original, par- profound thinkers. Uh, and he and he and he he agreed. He really got into it. Okay. Actually, Derrida, with whom I studied and whom I translated in my early years, and oh, I was wow. in Paris and lived in Paris for several years. Uh, and he also came to appreciate. So Hillman, uh, you know, he just needed a little bit of urging, okay. and then he, <laughs> he he would he would go deeply into something. Got you. And understand the larger significance of it. So do tell your friends that that, that Hillman was was quite immersed in contemporary French thought at the end of his life. Okay, thank you. I think they're going to really appreciate that because that's one of their ongoing yeah. interests. Okay, thank you. So, so uh, Ed, w- would you mind if we kind of jump into your incredible book, Turning Emotion Inside Out, <clears throat> Affective Life Beyond the Subject? I mean, I, but before we start, I, I just want to say, I mean, I, I was telling my wife earlier this week that I've just been smitten by it. I, I, just, I just thought it was such a great book. It's such an interesting way to think about emotion. On the one hand, you know, as a psychotherapist, that's what I mainly do. I feel yeah. like I am kind of in some ways stuck thinking about emotion as this thing that's been imprisoned inside the human subject, which I think you deconstruct in some powerful ways. But I, I haven't been able to put it down. It's just really giving me a different way to kind of think about things. And for that, I'm very thankful. And I hope anyone listening will pick it up and read it. I thought it was very readable. You know, I'm sort of an armchair philosopher. I, I enjoy reading philosophy, but I'm definitely not an expert. I don't have a degree in philosophy. I have a degree in theology and then counseling psychology. But um, I, I just thought it was very readable and very engaging. So thank you for writing it. Well, thank you for that. And I remind you that theology is never far from philosophy. So, you know, yeah, I, 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 I actually agree with that. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I think we're brothers under the flesh. I think okay. that, 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 you know, theologians uh, are all but philosophers and, and they, they think philosophically. They're, they're, they're subtle and perfectly profound philosophically. They just add factors of belief. Um, which many other philosophers who are not uh, so inclined uh, cannot pursue, um, you know, and and so the factor of belief, I'm using that term very generically now, but it really means belief in supernatural uh, entities, persons, messages, and so forth, um, becomes a, a pretty serious dividing point. Yes. So that my, my kind of philosophy, phenomenology, you see really explicitly um, says, no, let's pay attention to only what we directly experience here and now, mm. and especially uh, through and with our lived bodies. This is the great contribution of Merleau-Ponty, mm. the, the French phenomenologist, uh, and so, by having that focus, um, the theological dimension gets, frankly, neglected. It doesn't get denied, necessarily. It doesn't mean that it's worthless. It just means that it's another enterprise sure. that, than phenomenologists are trying to get into. And so, in my case, for emotions, 
Um, the way in which this is considerate, well, I call it peri-phenomenological. Yes. I've, I've invented that word. <laughs> yes. Which really means phenomena which exist around us mm. uh, at the perimeter of our lives. And I'm arguing that despite the all the subjectivistic turn of interpretation around emotion, that it's private, it's subjective, uh, it's, it's simply a matter of my history, um, it's in my mind, it's in my brain, mm. um, especially recently neurological accounts, fascinating as they are, uh, have taken over yes. most of the central discussion of emotion. And I consider that all part of a, a very powerful modernistic effort to load the subject with too much mm-hmm. gear. Um, yes. And not to recognize, you know, that, that really things that matter may come from elsewhere. And I don't mean the supernatural elsewhere. Right. I, I, right. Mean, I, mean, I mean just around us in crowds, <laughs> you know, sure. with other people. In the natural and, world. And, and in the natural world, thank you. That's so important, actually. And I'm turning more and more to that myself. Mm. Uh, it's not subjective. It, it isn't part of our subjectivity. I'm sorry. You know, right. we confront it. We learn from it. Uh, we're influenced by it. And emotion is no different. Uh, emotion comes to us instead of coming from us. Yes. That's a phrase I pursue in the book, as uh, I'm pretty sure you will recognize. And yes. um so um, the prototypical situation I take as significant for a new understanding of emotion is when we're walking to a scene where there's a crowd that has a certain mood, maybe angry, maybe jubilant. Um, notice how we can pick that up immediately. Oh, yeah. Uh, take it over ourselves and to me, that indicates that affectivity, a term that I like to use in place of emotion, affectivity transmits itself uh, across whole groups of people and indeed between people and the natural world as well. And we need to recognize and give credit to this extra subjective source of our emotional lives just as much as we've been turning inward all these years. I mean, you know, and of course I've been one of them <laughs> Sure. In, in my psychoanalytic work and, you know, I'm psychoanalyzed. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All that fine. Don't even regret it. It isn't that, but it was all a matter of introspection yeah. one way or another. And I am the last to uh, deny the value of this. I mean, it really made a difference. I think in my case, my psychotherapy, uh, which turned out to be with someone who later became famous. <laughs> At the time, oh, wow. I had no, I- had no idea who he was. Um, Are you able Hans- to say who he was? <laughs> oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, no. Hans Lowald. Oh, L-O-E-W-A-L-D. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> he actually was my analyst, as it turned out. I wow. <laughs> had no idea this guy was so smart. <laughs> but he was helpful to me, and, and we did really pretty much look into my, my private life and my prior subjective life and all that was fine i don't regret a minute of it it's really liberated me to return to painting Mm. that was really an immediate effect of that analysis in a kind of midlife crisis my 30s yes um i i I realized that 
painting something I really desperately needed to do and not only writing and okay. teaching. Okay. So I really turned back to painting with, with, with a, a passion and, uh, oh, that's and engaged in, in it. And I am still do sure. all these years. And so that's an example of where, you know, psychotherapy of uh, even a classical sword can be very valuable. I, I cannot possibly deny it. And I wouldn't try to. Okay. Well, but thank I you for that. Wanna, <laughs> well, yeah, no, no, really the work you do with clients, it's, it's, it's absolutely essential mm. to their well-being. But at the same time, we just need to, to uh, recognize emotion something we have overly subjectified and privatized yes uh, can come from elsewhere it it can uh, it, it 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 can be a gift mm. it can be of course it could also be a curse sure sure uh, but the point is it 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 moves into us mm. and and is not simply based in us but is actually something we take over we experience uh, we make it our own, but it's not our own originally. Yes, and this means you know, you know, all the childhood experiences you have um, are not simply your experiences. They really are how you take over the feelings mm. and affectivities of your family mm. and family members and internalize them. So notice that was a great chapter, chapter eight, where you get into Freud. And I, I've re, I've mainly been kind of a Jungian and a, and a Hillman guy, but I've recently mm. dug into Freud. I, I just really love that chapter on mm. how we form these unconscious emotional ties and identification. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just no, no, that's fine. Yeah, well, thanks. Good. I'm glad you like that. I it yeah. was a kind of risky chapter because here I was, you know, um, implicitly criticizing this whole school <laughs> to, to which I personally was indebted uh, at an early phase of my life in my late 20s and early 30s. Sure. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for the work I did uh, mm. with, with, with uh, you know, with, with a, a practicing psychoanalyst. So, you know, none of this is meant to discredit right. good work. Uh, that psychotherapy does and still does. And, and and Hillman, by the way, continued to do psychotherapy with patients, even into his last, last years. It was extraordinary. Oh, wow. And, and he was very sick himself, you mm. know, really dying from cancer. Um, and yet he continued to see patients um, and to believe that, that it was his duty to help them. And that would often involve help, you know, that we would call a personal privatistic. Sure. sure. Um, so, but you know, at the same um, time, he, one of like, I don't know if it's my, it's probably not the, my favorite book of his, but one of them probably in the top three is the one that he did with Michael Ventura. We've had a hundred years of psychotherapy and the yes. world's gotten worse, which I maybe is hyperbolic. Maybe he literally meant that. I'm, I know he hated the word literal, but uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I loved how he was moving the psyche out of the the clinical space, and you know, in some ways, I wondered if that book connected to to the one that we've been talking about as a as a more kind of public expression of the psyche. Well, that's a very very interesting um, idea, which hadn't occurred to me, and it shows you're a very acute reader. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, it was a book, of course, it had a great influence on me, too. 
and he and and also on Mary Watkins, he he was trying to turn psychotherapy into something that had a public face uh, and a right. public presence, you know, um, and to deprivatize um, the emphasis of classical psychoanalysis and classical psychotherapy, and you know, say that really it's a statement about the world, yes, not only about the inner space, the anima mundi. Yes, Anima Mundi, perfect example, soul of the world. Mm. Um, that's the way we translate that that Latin phrase. And um, Hillman really tried to pursue that radically yes. you know, back into the world. This is why Foucault uh, was especially meaningful to him. Okay. Because he recognized that Foucault really did grasp structures of the lived world and their social and political significance mm. with an uncanny genius uh that you know has never been matched um and and won't be one of the great tragedies was was Foucault's death from HIV yes you know at a relatively early age just when he was getting into his most incredible original work mm. oh my a real loss to the world lay there that's for sure sure but he, but 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 you know, you, you're you're on to it. That the book with Ventura was a turning point, um, and and Hillman really came to see that psychotherapy has social and political significance, um, and cannot be divorced from those dimensions. Right. Even if in the intimacy of psychotherapy, it may not be the the common language, mm. but nevertheless the dimension cannot be denied and it hovers there and in my book i'm i'm attempting to take that dimension and yes. its emotional being and and give it <laughs> a valence uh, mm -hmm. and authenticity has been denied in modernistic subjectivistic privatistic yes uh you know theories of affect yes now 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 ed can i ask you this uh and, and you do sort of address this in the book but but it just wasn't kind of the the main question you were answering. But you yeah. get at it at some level. I was hoping you could maybe or just ex explain it a little bit more. How do you philosophically make sense of how we got to the point in the modern world where we imprisoned emotions inside the subject? I I, I think it probably relates to like Descartes and and some other things. But could you could you speak to that? Yeah. No. Uh, you're you're on to it. It's the legacy of, of Descartes and the notion that thought is private mm -hmm. uh, and that, that what Descartes called the cogitatio, that is thinking, um, is something that happens inside us uh, and is indeed ultimately neurological. Descartes already had been saying that in the 17th century. Yes. And then later philosophers followed suit. Um, so Kant, the next great modern philosopher also attempted to subjectify thinking and um, turn it into something which the subject does within, you know, by himself, um, for himself. Um, even if it bears upon the objective world, nevertheless, it's largely something that's happening within the subject, the cognitive subject, in this case, the epistemological subject, the subject who knows. Um, and I think this 
this incredible, it's a powerful thesis and it's very seductive. Uh, and one can understand how it really took over the Western world and fit in with colonialism uh, perfectly hand in glove. That's another story, but, <laughs> but suffice it to say uh, that it, go, it does fit closely with uh, capitalism mm. uh, and colonialism um, and other forms of domination as fully justifiable uh, ways of exploiting others sure. who are less fortunate. Uh, and that link uh, was something that, that James Hillman perceived and we discussed often in his house in Connecticut when I would visit, um, and which comes out in this um, intimations, philosophical intimations volume I mentioned. Okay. Um, and I, you'll see another side of Hillman emerging there that is was not known to the public, but I think was equally important to his earlier work. And I think my work on emotion, and I, I really appreciate your your finding interest and value in it. Very much so. Came from those conversations, um, even okay. though I never got around to emotion. Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> it was too far in his past, Okay, um, you see, for him to return to it. Sure. For me, it was something that was really new and exciting and, and needed needed. And a fresh start, uh, and my book is the effort to to do that. Yeah, uh, turning emotion inside out. I mean that metaphor literally. You see, turning it inside out, trying to locate it outside us as much as inside us, mm. and realize that we take it over from uh, the the world that surrounds us. Then we internalize it. Then we think it's ours. Then we claim it's uh, <laughs> it, it has our name on it. Uh, but you know, that's not really the way that it goes. It goes very differently. We we forget mm. that we we learned emotion. We we savored it. We internalized it. We we identified with it. Um, but it emotion is a special kind of atmosphere, mm. a miasma, you might say. I like that uh, that descends on us and encompasses us and keeps us. Um, all of us in what I call, you know, the effective life. Yes. And that's the subtitle. Um, it was actually suggested by an editor. <laughs> I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't even think of it, but, but she read it. She read the book. She said, Oh, Hey, look, you're talking about the effective life <laughs> yes. of the subject. And I said, okay, let's yes. go for it. <laughs> and so, well, that's how that came. Yeah. These things happen sometimes you see. Oh yeah, for uh, sure. Now, could you, and, and I, I think the book before this one was on like edges, and I, I have not read that one. I, I feel like I probably need to, but you, mm. you in, in the, the scope of your argument, you, you connect this affective life, you connect emotions to this idea of, of an edge or, or the edges of, of existence. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak to that, maybe elucidate what you mean by that and how it connects to your argument. Yes, and that prior book it was called The World on Edge, um, and there I argue uh, that um, much of what we experience comes from not the substance, not the brunt, not the hulk of things, uh, but the way their edges insinuate themselves into our lives mm. and how our own edges 
personal, physical, psychological, insert themselves into our ongoing life. So I take edge as a neglected um, metaphor for um, what we can call subtle insinuations uh, that turn out to be major influences, even though they're so subtle sometimes we don't even have a name for them. Okay. And um, so that book attempts to actually, uh, it sets forth like, you know, zillions of types of edges Mm. that I consider neglected in Western thought uh, and that really do um, show us a different way of looking at the world, not in terms of simple subjects and objects, um, but in in a much more uh, uh, exciting way. Through their edges, we shall know them. Um, Mm. And we are known ourselves through our edges, emotional edges, physical edges. Um, You know, think of it. I mean, here we are on this podcast. We have the image of each other on the screen. Um, But the image is really an edge of who we are. Mm. I mean, it's not really, it isn't everything we are. Sure. Uh, God, I hope not. (laughs) Well, no, it's it's a way in. Um, Yeah. And so here my work in painting Mm. uh, became important because I realized that when you paint, you're really edging into a tree or a mountain or a a landscape. You're entering it by the edges uh, and you're trying to capture those edges and their vitality um, and specialness, their their uniqueness. So, yeah, the, the, the metaphor becomes more than a metaphor of edge. It becomes a whole metaphysical schema uh, that I argue in that book of, I think, 2017. Mm. Uh, the world on edge uh, uh, is a world that we need to recognize more fully because it will allow us to be more sensitive, more apprehensive in a good sense, Um more able to insinuate ourselves in a constructive way into problems and into helping others uh, in this difficult life of ours. So, so there we have, yes. And that really led to the book on emotion. You see, because emotions are really edges of our affective life. Sure. They're the outer, the outer edges, we could say. And other people give us their outer edges, you know, one way or another. Uh, they show them. They manifest them. Um, and that's how emotions come out, too. So um, it all fits one way or another. And thank you for <laughs> for linking them. You're, you're absolutely right. One of the few people who understands that link. Mm. Um, and I appreciate that very much. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. So okay, I, I wanted to just share this quick story and see what you th- we thought we, what you think about it. As, as I was reading the book, I was actually reminded going way back to my undergraduate years. I, I took a class. I, I minored in religious studies, and I took a class on it was the psychology of religion, but it was taught by a he was both an Episcopalian priest and a Jungian analyst, Pittman mm-hmm. McGee. And, and he he had a line one time in class where he said, you know, when we go to like rock concerts or like a musical concert. He looked at us, he says, we're not really going for the music, we're going for the overall kind of emotional experience. And, mm-hmm. and, and he didn't take the path that you took in the book, but it reminded me of, of what he was saying, because it's about, yeah, the emotions on the, on, on the outside coming into relationship with who we are as people. 
And we don't always know how to articulate what that is, but it is a very powerful experience. And, and, and I yes. wondered if that resonated with you. Yeah, it really does. Um, and thank you. I, I think music is indeed even the single best example mm. of the way that emotionality, I, I've, I've been using this word emotionality a lot. I like since that. Writing that book, you know, emotionality. So instead of, yeah, emotionality as opposed to just emotions, yes. which makes them look like little entities, <laughs> you know, little things. Um, my emotionality is a whole state of being and music induces that state powerfully and directly. Um, and so, so Pittman really had a point there. I, I, I think that this, that, that emotion uh, tends to be collected and intensified in music uh, in a very special way uh, that gets to us and because it moves through us. <laughs> yes. But notice, notice that it's coming from elsewhere, the musicians, the singer, yes. the score, right? Uh, Even the, the instruments and, and the, the sound waves. Yes, absolutely. I'm a great fan of jazz in my particular oh, case. Yeah, and I really, really find it incredibly moving. Um, and moving in a way that's moving with emotion. Look, the word emotion has motion in it. Let's remember that. <laughs> right. No, that's a great point. And, and um, jazz, and of course, much other music of the last two centuries, um, and indeed all the way going back to Bach. There's no no question this is moving music. Right. Um, and so it becomes a perfect paradigm of the emotional thesis I'm trying to promote, even though in the book I barely touch on it. I, I end with an appendix on two paintings. Yes. That have to do with um, with Nazism and the Holocaust in Germany to show that actually, even in images, we can have emotionality thrust upon us, mm. you know, um, taking us over. Um, and that's that if that's possible in pictorial work, it's even more possible in acoustic work mm. is what I, I would say. And, you know, it's, it's really extraordinary intensification of the very notion of emotion that I'm trying to get across that it comes to us instead of merely being in us. Yes. Um, it may come to reside in us through memory, you know, through trauma, of course, I'm not denying that. Right. But I'm interested in the moment of uptake, mm. uh, you know, in the world, out there, around us, um, in nature, with other human beings, at the door of hospitality, as Derrida yeah. said. Uh, you know, I mean, you're confronted with another person suffering, mm. needing a little food, and needing some support. Um, and there it is presented to us, not merely represented, but presented um, in the face of the other. Yes. Uh, the, the needful other. So I think this is all coherent in the end. We can we can put together these parts, I think, and what I hope is uh, a, a, a way that makes sense in our everyday lives, better sense than if we try to uh, pretend that we can figure it all out inside our own heads. Right. Um, 
So, so Ed, can, can I ask you this? Maybe as we come to a close, if, if, it, if it's not giving away too much, because I really want people to pick up the book, but, but you tell a story several times. You kind of weave it through the book uh, like, like a thread that, that helps illustrate your, your argument about emotionality. You talk about this experience on a beach. I can't pronounce the name, so I'm not going to try it, but a beach in California, I, th- I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, w- yeah. W- would you feel okay sharing that, or, or do you think that would take away too much? And no, 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 okay. no. That's fine. It it becomes a kind of archetypal experience. Um, yes, Jamala Beach is Jamala in, Beach. That's what it was. Okay, yeah. It's it's up in Northern California. I was I, I was visiting a prison just before that, and frankly, rather depressed uh, at what I saw and and what I encountered in the prison. And so um, I was with Mary. We were driving down the coast, and we saw this sign to Jamala Beach. And so we went over there, and there was an extraordinary scene. I'm actually not a beach person, okay. <laughs> even though I live in California. You know, <laughs> I don't. I don't swim. I don't. You know, I'm from Kansas, right? <laughs> I never learned these things. I'm from the Caribbean, so I have to be. <laughs> yes, you would be more likely to uh, jump right in yeah. to the surf. Um, but I was looking on, and I realized that there was an extraordinary exuberance. That's the word that came to mind. Mm, that's such a in great the word. Scene. It, it was in the scene. It was there. The jubilance, the exuberance was presented to me by the sky Mm. Um, the surfers, um, the winds, and I realized the emotionality of that circumstance was out there around me. Yes, I was taking it in. Yes, I could name it. Yes, I can write about it. But it came from there. And this is really um, why I take this as kind of prototypical story uh, about the origin of emotion Yes. And more recently, I've written a piece on awe. Oh, really? Which, which is, I think, where where, uh, where can we find that? Is is that published yet, or not yet published? Okay. Uh, I'll I'll let you know once it get, it's being considered in several places. I would love uh, to read I, that. That'd be great. Yeah, awe and empathy. I call it because I contrast awe and empathy with oh, each man. other. Okay. In this new work, but it's an extension of the work on emotion. But in any case, I experienced awe at that beach. You see, you know, like I'm amazing, you know, wondrous. Uh, it was it was extraordinary, and I mean that word literally, extraordinary, yes. <laughs> extraordinary, yes. um, overwhelming experience. Um, overwhelming. Notice how our language mm. does tell us the truth if only we can listen. Oh, well said. It, the emotion is out there or over us as as we were on that beach. So yes, thank you for remembering that yes. that particular story. Um, I've enjoyed this conversation, and I, I have appreciate too. It. Thank you so much. And again, I, I want anybody that's listening to kind of pick up the book. Um, I, I know that you have a phenomenal website. Is it? I'll include the link uh, in the show notes. But is it edwardcasey.com? Uh, I think so. I hope okay. so. Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. But people will, will be able to, to get the link, and, and it has a bunch of really interesting information about you. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sometimes always curious kind of what's next in terms of what you're writing, but I know you've already alluded to several maybe collaborative projects. 
I, I look mm-hmm. forward to some of that coming out. Maybe you'd be open to coming back on the podcast because I, I really did enjoy this conversation with you. Well, same here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. And it gave me a chance to articulate some things that I don't always put into writing. So okay. I'm, <laughs> Good good to be directly oral every so often. Yes, absolutely. Okay, well, Ed, thank you again, and I hope that we're able to connect in the future. I do hope so, yes. All right, be well, and uh, thanks for the invitation. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope that you were inspired and challenged by the conversation. I'd love to hear from you, and I would love to connect. The best way to reach me is to go to my website. You can go to Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y. That's kikeautry.com. And there you'll find all my contact information. Or if you just Google my name, Kike Autry, you'll find my Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram accounts. And you can reach out to me through those means. You can also check out the website of the practice that I work at, Katie Counseling for Men. That's katiecounselingformen.com, where I serve as the lead men's counselor, and you can reach out to me through that. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, or if you have any ideas on individuals that I could interview, please let me know. I'm always grateful to hear from my listeners. Uh, This wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you so much, and as always, continue the conversation. (music) 